0: An Olnouet podcast series focusing on current matters in the Mi'kmaq community.
1: Gwe, Actulasi, Delawisi, Sean Doak. Hello and welcome. My name is Sean Doke. I'm a proud member of the Lenox Island First Nation and communications officer with Olnouet. Welcome to Juguwe. I'm your host, and today I'm speaking with Captain and Elder Jimmy Bernard from Lenox Island First Nation. We're going to discuss the importance of carrying on culture and traditions, and basket weaving, which uh, Jimmy is a master basket weaver, and we'll just talk about some of the history behind that and the process that goes into that, and I just want to say welcome, Captain, and thank you very much for your time today, and I appreciate you uh, making time to speak with me. Mm -hmm.
0: So what does it mean uh, to you to be Mi'kmaq? What does it mean to me to be a Mi'kmaq? I mean it's just about everything now because of uh, all our uh, history in the past, where it it wasn't very nice, it wasn't very nice at all. So to have survived the 50s and 60s, which were a real struggle for anybody that's big moth, I struggled with all kinds of uh, difficulties in the past. I've um, went through in the 50s and 60s where basket weaving was something of, um, not only was it essential for uh, the natives to be able to make baskets, but it, it was a way of life. And uh, without the basket, a lot of people on the island would have starved because it was the time what I used to call with money, was just a rumor. And it was. Money was just a rumor. Yeah, Something everybody talked about but nobody had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everybody wanted to have some but nobody did. Now basket weaving came in and uh, they were sold for a very small amount of money. Like a potato basket would have been sold back then for 25 cents. And um, You might not have thought that $0.25 would have been a lot of money. Back then, they used to make the baskets that say 100 baskets a week, which gave the the person $25. Now $25 if you went to the superstore today, it might not get you a a whole bunch. As a matter of fact, you'd hardly get anything at all. But back in the 50s and 60s where you can go into the store with a dollar and get a pop and ice cream and a whole bunch of other stuff with just a dollar. So that's what it was back then. $25 would have gotten you the button, you'd be, uh, essentials like your potatoes and your uh, flour and uh, salt and sugar and milk. Very essential that you need to survive for a week. That's that's how it went back then. It was always a struggle, in a in a winter time, especially when the ice before the ice froze froze over completely. There was always a period where uh, you couldn't cross the, the river to get anything. So at at them times back then, you were really struggling just to get on the other side. Mm -hmm. I remember a time when uh, someone was pregnant and had to get across the river. So what we did was get a dory and pull it down to the shore, put her on there, took her out a ways where the ice was, hard and then, then there was no ice so we had to kind of push the dory around until we got into the water and from then we kind of paddled across the, the open water until we got to the ice on the other side and then from then it was back out of the boat onto the ice pushing and pulling and falling through the ice and <laughs> oh, no. it. Was a, it was a struggle getting getting the rest of the way, but we did it, and that was some of the hard stuff that we we had to go through because we didn't have a, a way of getting across. Mm-hmm. You know, the in the summertime wasn't too bad. We had a ferry boat that would take us across there, but in the winter time, it was either do or die. I guess it was really bad. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have lost their lives crossing that river.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I've I've heard similar stories. My grandmother has told me, just as you mentioned, there, um, crossing the ice in the winter, extremely extremely dangerous, and and a lot of lives lost, and and any day it, it could just take anybody. And crossing that ice was one of the many hardships that that folks faced on Lennox Island growing up. From what I understand, from what my grandmother has told me from her stories.
0: Yeah, it was a real. Thing, especially during a storm, and you were caught on the other side, you had to get onto this side, and you really couldn't see in front of you. And so you just went by guess or by gosh, I guess, across the ice. And a lot of times you'd be wondering whether you're going in in the right direction or not. Mm. So it was kind of touch and go there, you know. Yeah. If if you went in the wrong direction, then you're sure to get some open water. That's very scary.
1: It sounds like that was like a means of survival getting across, you know, from Lenox to the main part of uh, Prince Edward Island and, and even tying it back to the basket making that you talked about that came in in the 50s and 60s, it sounded like basket making was also like a means of survival uh, for people on Lenox
0: to be able to to live. It was. It was uh, the, the main part of your livelihood in the wintertime because you couldn't do anything else, really. So uh, to be able to get these baskets made and get the $25 a week, which is what you made out of 100 baskets, say. Eh? Mm. Today, one of those baskets will go between $200 and $225. Wow. Yeah, and I get a kick out of people who come around and uh, look at the baskets and say, well, I can't see myself paying that much money because I remember buying one for 80 bucks and now they're over 200, like, you know, and I would just tell them, well, yeah, I remember when they are at 25 cents, you know. Wow.
1: Times have changed quite a bit, hey?
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And... (laughs) I think you can buy a new pair back then for about twelve hundred or something like that. Yeah, so you can't compare anything today because all the prices for everything is going up. I wanted to ask you about a little bit more about
1: the basket weaving and when it got introduced to Lennox, I guess, or or how it got introduced into Lennox Island, how long have people been making baskets there? And where did you learn the skill? I should ask too?
0: Well, basket weaving on the reserves was never taught. It was a thing to do. You woke up in the morning and you saw your parents making baskets. When you went to sleep, you saw your parents still making baskets. So you started off by pounding the ash for them. And then gradually you'll get to take the strips apart. And you were kind of Put away from uh, scraping down the strips because if you would have used the knife the wrong way and you cut the strip in half or something like that, wouldn't be held to pay because the strip was like a piece of gold, I guess. Yeah, so that's how you, that's basically how you learn by watching. You know, nobody came and show you, showed you how to do this or showed you how to do that. It was this. You wash it over and over again so long that it's just natural for you to get up and do it. Mm -hmm. So that's how I I, uh, caught on to basket making. I had a job for a while for putting the bottoms of the basket together, the square bottom basket, which is uh, quite a little chore in itself. But anyways, it, it wasn't. The actual weaving up of the basket and shaping it, you know it was just putting the flat bottom together and then let it dry for a day or so so that they could dry up and you could squeeze the the strips together a little tighter because when the strips got dry, they shrank a little bit, you know,
1: okay, so it kind of tightened the whole the whole basket when it dried, yes, out.
0: yes. yes. So the, the talk of the basket and when it began is, is something that goes way back in history. Like, you know, before, I really don't know how long it was, but I think before the, the Europeans and everything came around, the baskets were actually probably made of straw and roots and whatever that they could find to make the little baskets just to carry things from here to there. But when the, when the other people come around there and started with their farming and uh, picking potatoes and apples. And this is when they started using the strips for firm baskets to carry a heavy load with it. And that's probably when they stopped using the bindings on the baskets and started to nail the basket together.
1: Okay. I didn't know that. And so, what would they use for bindings like previously before they switched to to the newer materials that they had been using?
0: The same thing, black ash. Okay. Yeah, it was just cut into thinner strips Mm -hmm. so that you could wrap it around and around. And this is basically how they made the uh, Jiggy on the the basket, the fancy baskets. But basket maker was always a Mi'kmaq tradition passed down through generations and generations and generations, I guess. Black ash is sort of like a, a sacred ash, sacred piece of wood. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of the black ash and um, how it really began to get get the get the name of uh, the sacred day. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go way back, way back, and I'll tell you a story that happened on a reserve. There was a woman that got very sick on this reserve one time, and and so the the elders got together and started to send send all over Mi'kma'ki to find out uh, a medicine man to come and, and help heal this woman. So they searched all over Mi'kmaq. there's people coming up from all different directions and nobody could nobody could cure this woman. So what happened was that they all all the elders got together in a long long house and discussed discussed what was taking place throughout the night. so during during that time they all got tired and they they all went to sleep there. and that night, They each had a dream and it was the same dream. Everyone had it. The dream was that a a man came to them and said, if you wanna save this woman, you're gonna have to go out into the woods, get a black ash, and get some strips out of that tree. Then you're gonna have to go and get a black spruce and dig down to its base and get some roots and with that you'll you'll put the strips into a form which you showed them and you you'd bind them together with the root the black spruce root and you would place that on the woman's breast at night and then she would be all right so anyways when they woke up in the next morning And one of them told about the dream and they all said, wow, we all had that same dream, you know? So they got together and they said, well, we'll have to do this because this was a message from somebody higher up to us. So they did that. And that night they got together again. The woman was now laid up and couldn't do anything. She was just, she was just there. So they got the strips, put them together in the form of a cross. And then they bind it together with the black spruce root. And they put it on the woman's breast. And they left it there all night. So the next day when they got up, they went over to the woman's house to see if she was still alive. And she was up making breakfast. Yeah. Wow. from then on, they had the, the, the cross on their teepees, on their bows, on their canoes, on the, on everything that they made, they had the form of the cross on it. Mm-hmm. Not long after that, there was the ships that came in, great big, what they called the, the floating islands. And they, they had the, what they were seeing was the big clouds that pushed them along those big clouds were sails and on the sails there was a form of a big cross a big red cross so now the natives seeing this said this has to be good it has to be good because the cross saved this woman mm-hmm. uh, and they revered it so so that was the first mistake from then on it's history Mm. and and this is why the 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 black ash was such a sacred uh, tree that's saving that woman's life and the black spruce root has been used for centuries for bindings of the canoes and well it was like the rope or a string Mm -hmm
1: used for all sorts of purposes, I'm sure, to to kind of hold things together. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's an incredible story. And uh, thank thank you, Walalin, well, thank you for sharing. I didn't know about the history of the Black Ash and how it came to be so significant and, and sacred. And was that a story that you heard growing up, Jimmy, or when might that have uh, taken place? Like recently? That was a like very you
0: know, long time ago. Our history is uh, something that's not written down. Our history is told from stories around campfires.
1: It's an oral history
0: yeah mm-hmm. and today the the same stories will be going around on uh, social media. Mm-hmm instead of the campfires <laughs>
1: right they're they're we're, uh still passing on those oral traditions in a in a, in a different way i guess
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah because we don't have campfires or if we do they're very seldom and far in between right so now it's social media but they're still being passed around and mm-hmm. uh, a lot more people get to hear them
1: hmm I think that's really great you know the more people that can hear about it and learn i I think the better what do you like about basket weaving like is there a particular part of the process that's your favorite or
0: mostly it's the accomplishment Mm. because most of our our lives now is, is something a little different than it was before like you know there's so many jobs that were started and never completed. So many chores that we started and never completed. Uh, it's, it's just an accomplishment, I guess, to be able to start something and, and see it through till the end. But right now we can't just go out in the woods and uh, chop down a tree and, like we did before because there's no black ash around here. Mm-hmm. So we have to get in touch with, uh, the rest of Mi'kmaugi and uh, see who's closer to it so we can uh, have something worked out together. And I'm doing that. Like, you know, I, I have people in New Brunswick and Northern New Brunswick and all over the place. I, I know people all over the place. And some of these people are uh, are good enough to be able to cut down some wood and bring it down. and and the exchange up a little bit of money you know, and you're you're off again so uh, the accomplishments of being able to get wood from uh, northern new brunswick down to here is uh just phenomenal i guess
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah there's there's just uh when you actually can see the job being done like you know that's a lot of work you know, people got to go out in the woods and First, got to find the spot where you're going to have good ash and then, then be able to cut it down and truck it down to New Brunswick. And then I'd go across there to get it, right, and then bring it down to here. Hmm. So the whole process there, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really a big deal. Not too many people can actually get that kind of work done for them.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a, a lot of hard work and, and a long process. And like you said, like even longer of a process now, because Black Ash isn't abundant here, or or even present here on PEI, that's a whole other extra step. But it's kind of nice, I guess, that you're able to work with other folks in Mi'kma'ki, you know, and get help from other Mi'kma'ki uh, people or, or communities in Mi'kma'ki. It sounds like a laborious process, but I'm glad to hear that there's some satisfaction that comes with it, stepping back from, you know, a piece that you've, you've really put a lot of sweat into and with your own, your own bare hands and creating something from nothing, really. Mm-hmm. Yep. Why do you think people are interested in basket weaving and cultural traditions? Like there seems to be more interest recently in, in the past few years.
0: Yeah. That's a good question, and uh, at one time, making baskets was a way of life. You know, you had to do it, there's no two ways about it. Now, it's turned into more of a craft, and people like to have originally made stuff in Moggy, like the the basket weaving, the uh, making stuff of pipe, or the makings of a canoe or, or just the uh, eel spears and stuff like that that are made by Mi'kmaq people. And it's amazing what you would find going out to a crowd and putting on a demonstration of how much uh, attention you can draw. I've seen a lot of people come to demonstrations. and. <laughs> They were kind of uh, really in wonder, I guess, uh, at how the basket is put together, especially when it's made from a a tree, a big tree, and then whittled down to a strip that you can wrap around and around with one another and then come up with a basket. It's it's something really unique, and people go for that. They're, And I think they always did, but like I said, money was hard to come by and the baskets that were sold way back in the day were not only sold for actual money, but usually sold to farmers for probably eggs and milk and what have you, whatever the the need was at the time it wasn't necessarily money always mm-hmm. it was money like in the 50s and 50s but before that like you know uh, where uh, there was no actual no money at all and uh, you had to get you still had to get food so what you do is you trade your uh, baskets beadworks all, all of the crafts that you can muster would be, including snowshoes, yeah, there was a lot of stuff that the Mi'kmaq put together that no one else did, like, you know, so, mm-hmm. yeah, they were they were able to still get their, their eggs and their milk and their meat and stuff from the farmers mm-hmm. with yeah, no money involved
1: basic basic goods trading basic goods to survive that that sounds uh like a what what it was hugely used for why do you think it's so important to keep our culture alive through traditions like basket weaving and and other things like that
0: well i suppose there's a whole lot of reasons for it one being it, it is our our um, culture to to do this. And another thing is that the the government wants to take everything from us. They took our language from us. They took our uh, medicine from us. And they took our well everything. They took everything and left us like a a shell. Mm. So now we have to fight to get our language back we have to fight to get our culture back uh, one time you couldn't uh, do a, a sweat you weren't allowed to speak mi'kmaq you weren't allowed to have uh, medicines you weren't you weren't allowed to do anything you know including work you know? Mm-hmm. because i remember a story this is this is going back quite a ways but the story went that there was this person on the reserve went up to the Indian agent. They didn't have a chief back. They had an Indian agent hmm. and, and asked if it was all right for him to buy a tractor. And the Indian agent said, no, you can't afford a tractor. So the, the person asking kind of realized that this was true. You know, he couldn't really afford to get a tractor because that was a big thing back then. So what he did was he went up and he got a bunch of his neighborhood people to come with him this time. And he got a whole bunch of men. They all went up there together and said, now can we buy a tractor? And then the Indian agent said, well, I have to talk to Amherst first. And I'll see what they have to say. So they went back up there the next week and asked again, what was the answer? The Indian agent says it was absolutely no, because what would happen then is that you would be able to make more potatoes, corn, and vegetables, and everything that you can eat. And then you will be forced to sell it on the other side, which would take the money from the poor farmers that are over there. So we weren't allowed to to make any money. We weren't allowed to work. So this is still going on today, but it was going on way back when, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it, it carries on in, in a different form, but still the same kind of idea happening. That's really not right, not not fair. And uh, I think a lot of things that the Mi'kmaq experienced were not fair. The government, like you said, took and took and took and left a shell And so I think that is all the more reason to hold on to the the culture and the traditions that we do have that we can continue and to revitalize things like language and make sure that we're able to carry that on because that's part of who we are. I want to say that you've helped to preserve and and carry on a tradition. And I'd like to know, what do you hope to see for the future of of Mi'kmaq culture and traditions?
0: Well, it's probably not what I could could possibly envision, but I I would I would like to see everybody as an equal, you know, because uh, the the times that went by are still the times today. I remember this one family that was down on PEI, and I was talking to a a descendant not very long ago, his last name is Pai, and he was telling me about his great-great-grandfather, and the story goes that he went to apply for a job with a, a farmer, and he got on, and was working with him for years, and he became very, very, very good. So the farmer was getting older and the older he got, the more this native had to do. At the end of it, he was running the farm. Mm-hmm. So now coming to the last end of the, the farmer there where he couldn't do anything anymore. And, and uh, so he had to sign his farm over to somebody because he was next to death, I guess. So he did, he signed it over to this farmer. His name was Pai. So they, he continued to work now being his own farm. But the, when the government found out about it, that he was actually a native making all this money, they came and took his land from him, just took it away from him and gave it to another person. So now that is still going on, a battle going on right now uh, with the uh, Claims, land claims, Lennox sounds' is fighting for that, that property to come back to the pie family.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've heard so many stories of
1: discrimination, and and that sounds like just one of them. And that's really too bad because it sounds like that that farmer really built that up and and put put in that work that was that was required of him, and for no other reason other than his culture, who he was, or, you know, being a native, it was taken from him. And that's that's not right. And I've heard many, many similar stories to that. There, there and, and like you say, there's still degrees of discrimination that continue today, even, you know, in different forms as well. But going back to what you said, you know, hoping for the future and hoping that people are all equal, treated as equals. I think that that's an optimistic outlook. And I hope the same too. I, I know that so many people are, are working really hard for that right now, including us, including Olnaway, including Lennox Island. So it's, it's part of the work that we do. I just want to end it with, uh, there was a quote that you had said, and, and I thought it was really interesting. Uh, and it was actually, it was in one of the culture campaign videos that Olnaway had produced. It was, our culture was taken from us And now I have the opportunity to bring that culture back to us. And I just thought that was a really strong, poignant kind of quote. It sums up so much, you know, I mean, our culture was taken from us and you've been doing a lot of work to preserve and bring that culture back and share it with people. And so I guess, I just wanna say, Will Allen, uh, thank you once again, I appreciate your time today and, and you making some time to speak with me, Jimmy.
0: Mm-hmm. very good
1: all right and we'll to all those who are listening and stay tuned for our next monthly episode from Sit ogama all my relations thank you
0: to find out more about ulnaway and the mi'kmaq rights reconciliation process visit ulnaway.ca